0: we Welcome back to Repro Radio. This is our first episode for season 2. So, if you're just joining us for the first time, first of all, you need to go back and listen to season 1. Second of all, I'm one of your hosts, Taylor Pinney, and my co-host is
1: Simon DeGraff, joining you from the University of Sydney, and Taylor is now a faculty member at the University of Queensland. That's a new development pretty much since the end of, uh, of season one. So congratulations, Taylor, on your new position.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah, there's been a lot, of, a lot of happenings, a lot of moving and shaking in the meantime between our seasons. But yeah, we're very excited to be able to bring you guys season two. We've got so many great guests lined up, um, a lot of really interesting content. We're covering a whole bunch of different topics, some of them human repro, some ag, some just very general questions about repro biology and topics that are close to both of our hearts, seminal plasma included. Uh, But for this first episode, again, we're kind of starting somewhere a bit comfortable. We're being kind to ourselves and and starting with sperm. So Simon, what are we talking about for this episode?
1: So today we're going to be talking to Moira O'Brien um as our as our main guest and then our ecr is natalie trig but both of our guests their focus has been on sperm production and male fertility that's where we're, we're starting for this episode and certainly for the for the season but as taylor mentioned we're going to be talking not just about sperm we're going to move through to the role of seminal plasma. We're then going to talk about sperm movement and transport through the female reproductive tract. We're gonna talk about uterine biology and reproduction in dairy cows. We're gonna talk about pregnancy, the placenta, the complications of pregnancy, effects of heat stress on reproduction. We're gonna have an episode on canine reproduction. And then uh, the final episode of the season will be on the endocrinology of reproduction. So a huge, Array of topics and a huge array of guests who are leaders in their field from all over the world. So we think that you're going to love this year's season. Uh, we're really excited to to bring it to you, and, and we know already that our our guests are pumped to share not just information about those those topics, um, but information about their research in general and their careers. Because I know a lot of you are are really interested in in knowing uh, how. All of our guests got to be where they where they are in their stage of of career in their in their life today. So, looking forward to it.
0: So, what a great guest to start off with! Then, um, somebody whose career we can all aspire to mimic. Currently, the dean of science, but also under her belt, uh, a past president of the Society for Reproductive Biology in Australia, and a very impressive track record. So let's get into our first interview with the sperm queen, Moira O'Brien. This episode is sponsored by Zoetis, a global leader in animal health. Now, Zoetis are well known in the repro world for making cedars for estrus synchronization. Having put many a cedar in myself, I can tell you how simple they are to use. It's pretty much the only easy part of running a field fertility trial. If you'd like more information, check out zoetis.com.au. So today we're very lucky to be joined by Professor Moira O'Brien, who is the Dean of Science at the University of Melbourne. So first of all, thank you so much for joining us, Moira. It's
2: a real pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Absolutely. So to start off with, I want to tell I want you to tell us a bit about how you first got interested. In repro and and sperm biology specifically, what what led you down that path? Uh,
2: look, it wasn't the thing I said I was going to do in you know year nine career counselling. Although I did probably know that I wanted to be um, in science, I did a bachelor of science here at the University of Melbourne. And when I did honours, I did it with um, Brendan Murphy, who most people in Australia would know who he is now. And we did a project on uh, kidney disease. And at the end of my honours year, we discovered that this protein that we worked on that was called SP4040 um, was most highly enriched in the male reproductive tract. And at that point, there were two of us in the lab and we both decided we wanted to be a PhD and there was a project on kidneys and there was a project on reproductive biology. And the other person didn't feel comfortable working with sperm and reproductive bits. I had no such problem. So, with one <laughs> way, I went the other and I made the best choice. So,
0: oh, it's well. a, it's red pill, blue pill in the matrix. <laughs> Imagine how differently things could have turned out.
1: This is the Moira O'Brien origin story that we've oh, all been yeah. waiting for.
0: <laughs> so, you've obviously had a very rich career um, and I know it's probably hard to sum up but can you tell us f- from your point of view what are some of the highlights?
2: I really like working with students and, and postdocs and, mm. and you know and part of that is I, I like the puzzle. I, I like being the first person to ever know something. Um, mm. might only be, Good
0: feeling I, isn't it? Might it?
2: Only be a small thing on paper but You know, it's a a big thing. And these days I'm the second person to know because... (laughs) (laughs) But the moments when, you know, that I find most satisfying is when I realise I'm working in a team on a question where the student or the postdoc is keeping up with me or even better, they are leading me and you have that, you know, ping pong of we could do this and if I do this experiment it will tell me this so I, I really enjoy the team part of science the success of others you know when early career researchers get awards you know that's almost as good sometimes it's even better than you know if it was a, a something to myself I'm mean, going to still love getting awards and grants and all those sorts of things but that you know that reflected yeah, you know, glory and pride for other people. I really like that. Yeah,
0: mm. lovely. And so, tell us a little bit about your research program at the moment. What's the kind of main focus of it? What are the big questions that you're trying to answer?
2: So, I have two broad parts of the lab that cause overlap a lot. One is identifying the genetic causes of human infertility, and we've done that kind of work for many, many years. And now we work in a, a consortium, which I can tell you about if you like. The other part is around sperm structure, function. You know, why? How do you build a sperm? And why are sperm from different species so different? So, you know, why do mice have really long sperm? You know, what do honey possums have? Really, really long sperm. Why do some sperm have, you know, head shaped like a discus, and other are like a hook, others are like pins, and, and how? how does that work in vitro? You know, why would some species produce different shapes and how do small changes in that affect how a sperm functions? And, of course, the the implication of that is, you know, what's the role of sperm in evolutionary biology? Because in a large part of evolutionary biology, the sperm are right at the forefront. The species where the polyandrous, where you have... Uh, females that mate with multiple partners, you know, how does that competition drive sperm shape? Of course, those two things fit together because if a, 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 this gene here gives a, a means of sperm can swim sp- faster, so it's more competitive. If you damage it through a genetic mutation, well, it'll end up, it's highly likely to end up in human infertility. So those things, or animal infertility, just as importantly, those two, you know, halves will actually overlap enormously.
0: Yeah. So very, very complex questions to which I imagine there are not a lot of simple answers. no.
1: Yeah, you know, a lot of a lot of people, uh, myself included, are probably guilty of not changing uh, the spermatogenesis and spermiogenesis lecture slides much from year to year. I'm wondering whether you could maybe touch on a few big findings over the the course of of the last I don't know ten even. Twenty years. I'm showing my age now too, and probably the age of my lecture slides. Some of the breakthroughs <laughs> that are, that have happened that that perhaps some people that are that are listening should consider uh, including in their their lectures around how spermatogenesis happens, uh, or even male fertility in or infertility in general.
2: One is that shift in understanding that sperm are much more than just. Cells to deliver DNA to a zygote. that, yes, you've got the hardware of the DNA, but the sperm also deliver this complex layering of epigenetic software, if you like, that will dictate, firstly, is early embryogenesis successful or not, but more importantly, the long-term health of that human or that animal and that that code, that software, whether it be DNA methylation or small RNAs or whether histones are taken out and replaced by protamines, for example, that's influenced by the environment, including the diet of the animal, the person that actually produced the sperm. So if you take that a step forward, that means in public health policy and I'm sure in agriculture as well, that we should be taking much more care in preconception healthy men as of course we have been women for quite some time uh, and that you know male animals people are much more than just sperm factories so we should be thinking about investing in the quality of gametes and if you can do that you could argue that the incidences of infertility will drop so men who are you know perhaps had a you know, a a genetic predisposition to infertility, but then you whack it with a poor diet so they became fertile. Well, if they had a healthy diet, they might be fertile. Or in the longer term, you will have healthier children who grow into healthier adults. Infertile men also carry a higher disease burden and Mm. as a cohort die younger than their fertile counterparts.
0: I did not know that. That's really interesting. And
2: it seems we're still unpicking it and, you know, we can see in some of the studies by, uh, you know, Michael Eisenberg and other people going through looking at particular predispositions. You know, we know that uh, increased rates of cancer but also inflammatory diseases, uh, all all sorts of things. And what we think is that there's two parts of it. And one is to produce... uh, a functional sperm, uh, it requires the coordination of many thousands of genes and about 3,000, 4,000 of those are very highly enriched in the testis, but they're not solely enriched in the testis. So if you have a genetic variant or an environmental insult that affects that gene, yes, fertility will fail first. So the man might be always infertile, but... With increased environmental insults and from you know the lifestyle or whatever, other systems will fail as well. and so um, examples of that would include the DNA repair genes, for example. If you muck up uh, DNA repair meiosis fails, but if you also go outside and get hit by UV radiation, ultimately you have an increased predisposition to cancer. If an animal or a human, Um, becomes infected with a virus, including COVID, um, or man breaks his arm or is under stress, fertility will drop off. So there's that, you know, when someone presents at a clinic, for example, you need to look at both the lifestyle effects and then perhaps, you know, have a look at some of the other effects as well. So we think that's the basis of the correlation.
0: That's really interesting. And now that you mention it, it is definitely something that I've come across before, this idea of particularly semen assessments being a bit of a canary in the coal mine for other things that are going on because so many of the issues that you tend to see with, for instance, you know, high DNA fragmentation in sperm or or low motility or count, you know, something that's causing a lot of DNA fragmentation in the testes what's it doing everywhere else in the body, you know, is that a process that's impacting other areas of health? So really interesting. I would like you to give me some of your thoughts on your, or I guess in general as a discipline, our approach to doing this type of research in kind of infertility specifically and and spermatogenesis, I guess, as well. So your team in particular uses a lot of different mouse models. Um, so can you kind of explain how you ended up working with those particular models and, and whether that type of work is, do you think, becoming more popular because it's it's easier and cheaper and faster to do?
2: The choice to work on mouse models was um, in large part due to that they're, they're actually a very good analogue of, of human male infertility and most other mammals as well. Uh, the advantage of them is that they will do what I ask them to do uh, and that they will mate with who I want them to mate with when I want them to mate.
0: Very helpful.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Most of the processes are highly conserved. There are some processes that aren't, but the vast, vast majority are. Uh, Mice are... Very genetically flexible in that, um, particularly with some of the new technologies, which i will come to in the moment, uh, you can add precise mutations or you can add in fluorescent tags and you can do all sorts of... You can work out exactly which genes are expressed in which individual cells. So uh, technology-wise, they're very, very flexible. Uh, your question about has it got easier... Uh, yes, in some ways. I mean, certainly the introduction of CRISPR technology really changed the game. Um, recombinant DNA technology worked quite well, but not always. Uh, with the introduction of the CRISPR technologies, you can just shave at least six months off making a mouse. Not sure it's much cheaper, but time is money, so six months equates to um, quite a lot of. Uh, money but where it does make a really big difference time and cost wise it is if you want to introduce a small very precise change so yeah. with CRISPR technologies you can in, uh, introduce individual nucleotide changes so in uh, one of the projects we're doing at the moment is we are sequencing a whole lot of infertile men We are doing, well, I'm not, our collaborators are doing all of the bioinformatics, saying, well, I like the look of this gene. Um, My lab will then say it's expressed at the right place. It makes sense biologically. Let's do the test. Let's introduce the exact same genetic variant into a mouse and find out it was infertile. So pre-CRISPR, that would have been prohibitively expensive would have taken at least, you know, 18 months, two years to generate the mouse, meaning that really you had to have a highly committed PhD student to answer that question. It's sped up enough and it's reliable enough now that you could line up such mouse models for an honours student or a master's student so you can actually move up a whole lot faster. Um, I should say that one of my, some of my favourites um, we do also work on uh, other models, including um, flies. What we're doing now, and, uh, in particular in areas around stem cells and meiosis, which are quite well conserved between flies to humans, we pre-filter them using fly models and then if they're infertile, we might then choose to take some of those into mouse models. But equally, in many cases, we don't need to because the fly is just as informative whole lot faster than uh, making a mouse model
0: so tell us about what's the consortium that you mentioned when you were speaking previously it's the
2: internet it's the male fertility genomics consortium and i I, maybe it was five or so might have been a little bit longer we set this up and it was to try and bring together it's a to bring together the different skills around the world so it's a group of not sure how many now, 15 or so, groups from around the world, some of which are like me who are germ cell biologists, some are geneticists, extremely good geneticists who are comfortable reading DNA but, you know, maybe not so much looking at sperm. We have clinical andrologists, we have public health people and it's fantastic watching them add their particular skills. The initial impetus for the... um, uh, the collaboration was the realisation that if we were going to be able to detect a significant proportion of genetic changes that lead to infertility, well, we've got to work in teams. By definition, uh, if you have a variant that causes infertility, chances are they're not going to have many kids. Um, so if you want to find mutations in the same gene, you're going to need thousands of patients to actually look at with the development of whole exome and then whole genome sequencing and the costs coming down the sequencing part of it was no longer prohibitive we had to have large numbers of patients and they had to be appropriately phenotyped so it wasn't good enough to say infertile you had to say no sperm with a testis histology that looks like this or good-looking sperm, but they can't swim properly, or they've got funny heads. So we really required the embryologist, the clinical embryologist, who could describe what the sperm looked like, or what the histology looked like, and it's when you can get those nice tight groups that you we got answers quite quickly. The idea being that eventually we can feed those into um, a, a clinical. Panel's the wrong word. It's a bioinformatics pipeline. So, when the field transitions to using whole genome sequencing or genome sequencing technologies as a diagnostic, we can say variants in these genes are relevant. Um, you should talk to your patient about this. This might direct you towards a particular assisted reproductive technology or therapy. Mm.
0: And so, on on that point, what are the treatments? So, say for instance, you know, you you realize that you've got a SNP in a gene that's really relevant and that's likely what's causing infertility. Is the treatment for that just going to be based off the phenotype? So, you know, if for instance, if they've got low motility, maybe doing ICSI, or are there likely in the future to be much more targeted treatments?
2: So, that was the most frustrating part of the review to write. And we got the experts to look at it, say so can you write down all the all, all the treatments. And actually precise treatments, so you know a, a precise cause of infertility, and we can address that directly. there are very, very few. So, if you have defects in the hormonal regulation, actually we can treat those precisely. Need, uh, you know, some extra LH or FSH or testosterone, no problem. Um, but that's only 1% of infertile humans. We, uh, there's a few others where we know the precise consequences of a change. So, for example, uh, if you have men who have deletions in the Y chromosome, we know that if those men have sons by ICSI, which is the treatment strategy that has to be used. The sons will also include, carry that variant, so they will almost certainly be infertile. Some patients may choose to select for daughters, some may not. Um, So there are a, a, a few where we know the precise cause consequence but the vast majority we don't, and they're treating treated as cellular categories. Low sperm count. Let's just grab a sperm. What's a good sperm? Oh, I don't really know. So let's take that one. Um, so we need to start having a much more granular understanding of what the causes of infertility are. Now, in some of those, there will be precise treatments. Uh, I, as we talked before, about the uh, epigenetic causes. You could imagine that in the, I would argue, in the not-too-distant future, um, you might find damaging variants in epigenetic regulators of male fertility. All right, I want you to go back and I want you to clean up your diet and stop smoking and get a little bit of exercise. Their fertility might improve you know, naturally. Great outcome. But for some of the others, and a significant proportion, you will identify a change and you'll say, okay, you have a, let's say, a variant here that means um, your sperm can't swim properly. If we do intracytoplasmic sperm injection, so we're going to sequence the potential mum as well, uh, if you have any children, they will likely be carriers of the same genetic variant. Okay, no harm done. Um, But, um, you know, for some of them, and this is really honey, just starting to scratch the surface on this. Some genetic changes, for example, will be dominant. Um, if we knew about those, then you might want to do selection at the at the um, embryo level, for example, to avoid the child having the same hassle down the track. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and that's a big part of it as well, right? Is not just not just overcoming the hurdle of actually. You know, getting through fertilization, embryo development, and pregnancy, but then what's happening in the offspring? Then are they impacted by the same condition?
1: Moira, um, we've spoken a lot about genes. Any particular favorites you've identified <laughs> over the years? Genes that you think are particularly interesting?
2: Sperm tail genes. Sperm tails are like the mm. coolest structure going around uh, that these you know, a uh, complex cellular machinery that generates motility that is adaptive to the environment that the sperm's got to go around and the fluid mechanics surrounding it is really, really cool. Um, individual genes. Look, we, um, my lab has a love-hate relationship with crisp proteins. I was going like to ask about crisps. Meaning, I love them and <laughs> I hate them. Yep. They are really, really interesting, and we know that they do a whole lot of really important things, but they're not black and white. If you knock them out, mice are infertile until you give them a challenge and then they're not quite so And we think, you know, just unpicking uh, the cell biology around. I suspect part of this is when I first came back from the US, this was one of the first groups of proteins I worked on, and I can be quite stubborn. That you know,
3: I'm
0: gonna solve this critter before I retire. So, yeah, yep, yeah. I love it. And it is, I my thesis was on a particular family of seminal plasma proteins, <laughs> so I definitely know how you feel. It was so nice to have you on, as always, an absolute pleasure. Thank
1: you, Myra.
2: Thank
0: you for inviting me. Okay, we are back with everybody's favourite segment of Repro Radio. It's Repro News. so glad to be
2: back, guys.
0: (laughs) Ah. Thank you for coming back and sharing all of the latest happenings with us, Naomi. So what do we have to look forward to in April?
4: Well, first of all, um, I wonder if you will humor me to give you another fun fact. So I feel like this is now going to be part of our segment's every episode. Yes. Um, So I'll start out with something fun um, and then we'll go into into everything that's going on in April that you guys want to pencil into into your calendars. Um, So my fun fact of April is about the naked mole rat. Um, Oh, yes. Yes. Very well known for their extremely malformed sperm. um, And they believe that this is attributed to the their odd social structure. And the only ones that that can reproduce are the queen and her male consort. And for this reason, there's no competition with the other males to have to mate. So they find this is their idea is that because there's no competition between other males, the sperm quality doesn't need to be great. So most of the sperm are just absolutely terrible. So just some clear examples of this is that um they're smaller they've got abnormally shaped heads which you know we find in humans as well anyway yep. um and the dna isn't packaged properly they have a short midpiece they have fewer mitochondria so they don't swim as well i think they said so in this paper that i found only there's only 77% motile sperm on average although they are extremely slow only 7% 7% and this was wow. just in this one study mind you um but, and the i think this was also in breeding males so these ones that actually have bred before 7% wow elementary.
0: that is so interesting thank you for scouring the depths of the internet to find <laughs> that because i have literally <laughs> never heard of that before and it is I, my mind is blown so blown um, mission it, accomplished It totally is, yes.
4: Fun fact, when you're at your coffee breaks, don't worry, just bring up about uh, naked mole rat sperm and people will be astounded.
0: (laughs) I love it. I wonder (laughs) if it's got anything to do with the fact that they live for like a ridiculously long amount of time. I can't remember what the lifespan of a naked mole rat is, but I know that they're sometimes used as like a kind of aging. An aging. Yeah, Yeah. like study model. So I wonder if it's got something to do with reproductive aging. All right, we need need our best minds on this. Can someone please... Do some research,
4: this. study them from like when they're sexually mature all throughout yep. their ages and just see what the sperm quality looks like i yep. mean like it's just it astounds me like dna isn't packaged properly that's mental like they, what, i mean how do these sperm even do anything at all and yet they still do
0: it's just I'm, astounding astounding uh, yeah I'm I'm taking notes because I'm gonna write a grant about this. But
4: <laughs> Naked Mole rat. Yeah. Oh if, uh, yes.
0: If anybody beats me to it, just like tag us on Twitter and let me know oh, yes. what the outcome is. Amazing. I can't <laughs> wait to hear all about this research. Anyway, so that's about the
4: naked mole rat. So there's our fun fact. So let's get into some things that are going on or at least coming up um, yep. in the next month or so. So in terms of our conferences, so we have a couple here that will definitely be of interest to our andrologists or our mm-hmm. enthusiastic andrologists. Um, so the 47th American Society of Andrology, the annual conference. Um, so this will be in, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this correctly, La Jolla or La Jolla in California.
0: It, it probably should have a soft J.
4: Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) that's how I said it in my brain. Um, And that's on the 7th to the 10th of May. And abstracts, they are due on the 3rd of April. So if you have something, please submit it as like pretty much two days after this episode drops. Yeah. But yeah, that will be a very interesting conference. Um, We also have the 11th Aspire. So this is an association I haven't heard of before, the Mm -hmm. Asia-Pacific Initiative on Reproduction. Um, So this is entirely virtual, um, so anyone in the world can attend. Um, It's from the 28th of April to the 1st of May. Um, Abstracts do appear to be closed, but registrations are still open. Um, and then another conference I came across, speaking of reproductive ageing, there is a yep. reproductive ageing conference. Um, and this is in Palm, Spring, is Palm Springs in California on the 5th to the 9th of June. Abstracts are due by April 25th and early Reggio is due by the 5th of May.
0: If you haven't heard of this conference before, uh, it's because it's the inaugural conference. So this is a, a new kind of faceb organised conference, uh, trying to get people from the fields of reproductive biology and ageing in yes. the same room. You know, there are there are obviously a few people kind of that we know more from the repro mm-hmm. side who have For an sure. interest in ageing but there are people on the aging side that are starting to get more interested in reproduction as well. So that, that conference is really kind of the first of its kind to have a program that's completely focused on reproduction and aging together as a kind of paradigm. So really interesting talks, I'm sure. Um, And yeah, if you've got any interest in, in reproductive aging, highly encourage you to check that one out.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Because I, yeah, as you said, I'd never seen that come up before. And I was like, oh, like every every time I've been to an SRB or an SSR conference, Mm -hmm. there's always quite a lot of researchers in this field. So it's so nice that they can all join forces and come together at one single conference, some In terms of our upcoming training, um, so the American Society of Andrology um, is actually hosting a North American testis workshop. Love it. Uh, So this is uh, covering a range of topics from contraception um, to regulators of spermatogenesis. So this is preceding that conference on May 4th to the 7th. For our animal um, uh, reproductive biologists out there, if you're listening, um, there is an equine reproduction workshop. Now, it is pretty close, so you may miss out, but I just thought, look, just in case there's anyone in Queensland who's interested in getting involved in some equine reproduction, um, it's on the 2nd to the 3rd of April in Oakey, Queensland, um, and you'll have all the details on our website so you can check that out and see whether you're still able to register. Um, In terms of our upcoming awards or grants, um, so we actually have there's a couple of awards that are coming up that are um, hosted by the Society of Reproduction and Fertility. Um, So there's two two awards, the Marshall Medal 2022, which is awarded to Outstanding Contributors to the Study of Fertility and Reproduction, um, and the Distinguished Scientist Anne McLaren Award, and this acknowledges premier scientists that have made major scientific contributions to the field of reproductive biology. And both of these nominations are due on the 30th of April, so make sure to get your nominations in. Love it. Love love an award
0: named after a woman as well.
4: Yes. Oh, my God. Yes, so Queen. <laughs> yes, Queens. Oh, amazing. Um, okay, so for our publication of the month, um, I did come up. I was having a look, looking through Twitter because I always find some of the, the most interesting papers pop up on there because people are always sharing them around in our field. Yeah. And one that I noticed come up was um, viable offspring derived from single unfertilized mammalian oocytes. Yep. Um, and this uh, was published in PNAS, um, I believe. Uh, and this just absolutely blew my mind um, that they were able to um, to be able to do this to have viable offspring um, just by Parthenogenesis.
0: I'm going to make a confession. Yes. I liked the tweet, but I haven't read the paper yet. Oh, that's okay. It's
4: sharing Uh, it around. It's sharing the love. Yep. It's, Um, it's
0: on my to-do list. And I, I was like you very excited when I saw it. Love the idea. (laughs) Just need to make the time. Just need to, yeah, set aside, make a cup of tea, sit down get stuck in.
4: Absolutely. And that's what you lovely people or all the listeners of Repro Radio can do now. Have a sit down with your cuppa, morning cuppa, and read this paper because it is a doozy.
0: Love it. Thank you so much, Naomi, for giving us the Repro News. We'll catch you next time. Sounds
4: good. Bye.
3: today on Repro Radio, we are welcoming Dr. Natalie Trigg um, as our ECR guest. And Natalie's work really delves into how epigenetic factors can influence male fertility um, and subsequent embryo quality. What have kind of been your main findings in this area over the past couple of years of career, I guess? My PhD focused on a um, xenobiotic acrylamide
5: and the exposure Um, to a male and how that affects um, fertility with a focus on um, affecting sperm small RNAs. Um, And I think from um, my research in that field, there's probably like two main findings that really stand out. Um, And one of the ones was that these um, small RNA changes occur um, after the sperm develop in the testes. Um, In this tissue known as the epididymis. So we saw that those changes were occurring during that time period. Um, And what was remarkable about that is that the sperm are transcriptionally and translationally silent, So these changes are driven by some external factors. And the other main finding was that, which is really quite important, is um, that after a time of recovery following this exposure to acrylamide, um, these small RNA changes were able to recover. Um, So, revert back to like normal levels. And uh, we did only look at that at a uh, select uh, few small RNAs. um, It'd be important to look at it at a global level. Um, But I think that's really important when. considering any sort of clinical applications or translation to humans, uh, whether or not these um, changes are set
3: in stone or not after exposure. Yeah, definitely. That's really interesting and good to know that it's transient, particularly given that it happens within, I guess, a window that we don't normally consider. I think a lot of these things we look at much earlier stages of spermatogenesis and the downstream effects, but the fact that this happens in the epididymis, is that's actually quite amazing. Do you think, I guess, given this, that there's a, a clinical application for this work? Looking at small RNAs in sperm that
5: and like how they relate to fertility is definitely something that could have a clinical application. Um, I think at this point, it's probably quite early, um, it's say, looking at the small RNA pro- profile in terms of fertility. Um, that's probably mainly due to the Technical aspect of the techniques um, and methods used. Um, but in establishing whether or not um, an exposure can change the small RNA profile and um, advising um, people on that, that, yeah, definitely important. But it's important um, in that aspect to make sure those um, exposure doses and timing and that is translational and physiological.
3: So that was, that was really your PhD work, I guess. You've now moved on to start a postdoc at the University of Pennsylvania, which I congratulate on, particularly given our um, unprecedented times. How's all that going and what are you sort of working on at the moment? Uh, yeah, it's
5: going really well. Um, everyone in the lab is really nice and made um, my move here. Um, good which is good um, and I've, I've kind of stayed in the same field so still looking at sperm small RNAs um, but now more so what exactly they do in the embryo so say um, a stressed father has um, a changed small RNA profile and if you take those small RNAs um, and inject that into an otherwise naive zygote they can the, the small RNAs are able to translate uh, transfer. Uh, phenotype to the offspring that you see normally so we know that something's happening but we don't really know what exactly the small RNAs do in those first stages of the um,
3: embryos. You said your your lab group is really friendly what's it been like actually transitioning from Australia uh, to the United States in the middle of a pandemic?
5: Yeah yeah um it actually it was a bit tricky but not um too bad I so I was I had to delay my move about six months um due to the pandemic that was more so I was um wanting to see if things would settle down uh which of course as we know it didn't really but not quite <laughs> yeah ended up leaving um, Australia about a week before New South Wales went into their lockdown so my timing um, somehow worked out very well so I'm very thankful for that. It really there was just a few more logistical things like that I had to do to leave um, but it probably wasn't too much different.
3: I think given that a lot of early career researchers at the moment might be I guess a few steps behind where you were thinking about a position overseas but but not sure if that move is okay Um, in these current times. Have you got any advice? Uh, Do you think it's still definitely worthwhile doing and possible to go ahead?
5: Yeah, I definitely think so. I think everyone's uh, situation is probably different. Um, And I know uh, before moving here and looking at um, people graduating their PhD before me and moving without a pandemic, I didn't think I would be able to do that, but I realised it was much easier than I thought. Um, And it's been very... rewarding so far.
3: Definitely worthwhile. Well, that's really great to hear. Um, so we'll be keeping an eye out for all your future work, definitely. But thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me.
0: So many interesting insights from Moira and Nat. I mean, sperm something that I feel like I always find interesting, so I'm probably a bit biased. But hopefully you got some interesting details, not just about sperm and kind of male infertility, but maybe just a bit of insight as well into thoughts about your scientific career and where it might take you.
1: Definitely. Uh, it's, it's something which comes up all of the time and I have no doubt we'll, we'll hear it from other guests this season that finding a mentor is, is just so important, um, putting yourself out there and, and making sure that you've got that team around you, celebrating the wins. All of those things are, are just so key if you want to not just survive in science, but thrive as well. So whilst today's episode was about male fertility and we have learned some incredible things about the the work that uh, both Moira and, uh, and Nat are doing, we've also, I think, learned uh, a few good hot tips about what to do if you're a, an ECR, or even somebody a little bit more senior, and you're thinking, uh, "I've got a bit of low energy at the moment. Uh, how do I just lift myself up in a, what has been a difficult two years, and uh, and get that motivation to to keep going and um, and really punch out some some great research and stay motivated for the uh, for what is an amazing field of reproductive biology."
0: Yeah, absolutely. So next episode, uh, this is one that both you and I have known will be on the cards until we do the episode. So we decided to just get over ourselves and do it. So, uh, we're talking about seminal plasma, which I'm really, really excited for. I think it's going to be a great episode. Um, so look forward to that, but for the meantime, thanks very much to both of our guests for this episode, Moira and Nat, and for our sponsors, and we'll see you soon. Thanks for joining us. For more information about our guests today or repro news, check out the show notes for this episode on our website. If you've got a question for our next guest, send us an email or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Repro Radio is hosted and produced by me, Taylor Pinney, and executive produced by Simon DeGraff. Graff. Repro News by Naomi Bernicich, ACR Spotlight Reporting by Kelsey Poole. Production assistance by Jess Rickard, Maddie Vanderhoek and Sophie War, And audio design by Dylan Gerrelly. Well, that was a lot of fun. Um... It you know, doesn't sound
1: like it, Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> oh, that was a lot of fun.
0: That was a lot of fun.